My global IQ is 109. I'm your host, Jim Falk. In two days, voters go to the polls in South Carolina to be followed just three days later on March 3rd by Super Tuesday, when one-third of the available Democrat delegates are up for grabs. I can tell you that in Texas, it seems like every TV program is being brought to you by Mike Bloomberg. There's no better person to decipher what may happen and what it potentially means for the upcoming presidential election than tonight's guest, Kyle Kondik. He's the managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, the University of Virginia's Center of Politics nonpartisan weekly newsletter on our elections. Kyle, thanks so much for coming to Dallas, especially this week. Good to be here. So, how fluid is the race? I think it's very fluid. And you mentioned uh, Michael Bloomberg obviously running a campaign, the likes of which we really haven't seen before, in that I believe he already has eclipsed the most amount of money ever spent on television advertising by a presidential candidate, uh, eclipsing, I think, Barack Obama's 2012 campaign spending in the general election. So this is really incredible. And yet, as you look at the Super Tuesday map, I don't know if you could point to any single state and say, hey, Bloomberg's favored to win that state. I mean, I think he's going to pick up delegates in a lot of places, and he's very competitive in a lot of these states. There's some of these, some of the polls indicate there's kind of almost three-way ties amongst Bloomberg, Joe Biden, and uh, Bernie Sanders in some of these states. But I don't necessarily know how much Bloomberg is getting for his money, although it's kind of hard to know because he hasn't been on the ballot anywhere. Biden seems to look like he's going to win in South Carolina, and I saw earlier perhaps by as much as 20 percentage points. Yeah. Is that enough for him to regain the momentum? Uh, well, look, I think if, if Biden does, in fact, win South Carolina in a landslide, and I guess it sort of depends on what you define as a landslide. I mean, it's not going to be like Hillary Clinton winning by, I think, about 45 points in 2016 over Bernie Sanders. Just the, the race has uh, obviously got more candidates in it, and it, it, it's more fluid, and Biden's not as strong as Clinton was at this time four years ago. However, if Biden wins South Carolina by 15, 20 points, that might be suggestive of broader strength in the South and six additional Southern states, including Texas, vote on Super Tuesday. I think it is possible that Biden could potentially win all the Southern states voting or at least many of the Southern states voting, although the one that's the biggest prize and the one that to me is is probably the most up in the air is, in fact, Texas. But the African-American vote, that's really what's going to bring the vice president across the finish line. That's right. And it's important to note, too, that so I mentioned all the southern states voting. Obviously, a lot of the southern states have uh, significant African-American populations. Biden has done really well with that group. South Carolina's electorate is probably going to be about 60 percent African-American. No other southern state voting on Super Tuesday will be that high. Uh, Alabama is one that's going to be up close to South Carolina. But then when you go to some of these other states, you're, you're thinking you're looking more like uh, maybe 25 to 30 percent African-American electorates. And so if Biden is just strong with African-Americans and not really stronger than anyone else, that might not be enough to get him across the finish line again in some of these other states. And you also have to remember that the way the delegates are apportioned, you know, it's not winner take all. Uh, it's uh, proportional at the statewide level and also the congressional district level or here in Texas, it's actually the state Senate districts they use to award the delegates and not the congressional districts. But if the vote percentages are pretty close to the statewide level, you would expect probably a fairly muddled result in terms of who gets who gets the most delegates. I want to ask you a question about Nevada. I was really surprised how well Bernie Sanders did with the Hispanic population. 
Why is that? Will we see that across the country? You know, it's interesting in that in that Sanders was not quite as strong with Hispanics or non-white voters in general in 2016. It does go to show that a candidate's uh, support level can change and uh, that maybe you know Hillary Clinton was a better candidate for those voters in 2016, but then there's been no one really better than Sanders for that particular group. And, and look, I mean, I think that Sanders is offering a you know, pretty liberal policy agenda. I think he has targeted Hispanic voters and he is offering a lot of working class folks a message they can get behind. Now, again, a lot of people can step back and look and say, hey, is what Sanders is proposing actually realistic? Are these things that can actually pass? But I think to, uh, to a lot of working class people, I think it is pretty attractive. And so that's a great test for here in Texas and also California, the two big prize on Super Tuesday. Both of those states actually are going to have a higher percentage of uh, or higher vote share of, of Hispanic voters than Nevada did. Quite possibly, uh, Sanders could do well in both states, although my general sense is that Hispanic voters in Texas are more conservative than they are in Nevada or in California. So maybe that plays a little bit of a role here, too. Now a word from our sponsor. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So one third of the delegates are up for grabs on Super Tuesday. That's right. California is part of Super Tuesday now for the first time. Why was that decision made? So states, every, every four years, they'll decide whether they want to sort of be at the back of the pack or whether they want to be more in the mix, I guess. Uh, and so in 2008, California actually did vote relatively early. I don't know if it was actually on Super Tuesday, but it was relatively early in the calendar. And then in 2016, it was, it was among the last states to vote in June. Um, so it voted when the race between Clinton and Sanders was, was pretty effectively decided and the Republican race was basically over. There's this trend in American politics in, in primaries that we call front loading, you know, where these, these states try to move up because they feel like they have to vote at the start of the pack if they really want to have a say in terms of who the nominees are going to be. But then sometimes these races go a lot longer than people think. And, and, and then you wonder, should these states have actually waited till the end because maybe they actually would have more power then? So it's, it's sort of a gamble that these states make. California decided to move up this time. Well, that's exactly what I want to do now is put you on the spot. Are we going to have a brokered convention or will Bernie have enough delegates that we won't have that? I would say that history tells us that these things have a way of working themselves out. My guess is that we won't go to the Milwaukee convention in July um, without knowing who the nominee is going to be. But there are a lot of factors here. Sanders is best positioned of any candidate to finish the nominating season with the most delegates. However, you need 50 percent plus one to actually get over the finish line. And then it's a question of, well, how close would he be? Would he actually be able to get to 50 percent or would it be more like 45 percent or more like 40? And the further you get away from 50 percent, I'd say the less claim you have to the nomination on the first ballot. And how much resistance is there to Sanders within the party? I don't know. I think with rank and file Democratic voters, they basically like Sanders just fine. I mean, do you really think that's the case? The I do think I mean, if you look at favorability numbers, um, Associated Press uh, came out with a poll, I think it was last week, and it shows Sanders had the best favorability amongst Democrats of any of the Democrats running. And also, 
while I do think Sanders might have some electability issues, particularly in the Sun Belt, uh, where Democrats are very reliant now on affluent voters who have four-year college degrees, who maybe don't like Donald Trump, but maybe also think that Sanders is not quite their kind of Democrat. That said, if you just look at the national polling, Biden and Sanders basically do the same against Donald Trump. They're both up by about four or five points in polling averages. Now, again, the polling isn't predictive right now, but as, as others have noted, when there have been factional candidates in the past who have scared the party leadership, often that, that was, those factional candidates were doing a lot worse in general election hypothetical head-to-heads uh, than other candidates, whereas, again, Sanders is doing about the same. Now, if you drill down, if you look at some of the polls of the Sun Belt states, Arizona is one that stands out. That's a state where Sanders is consistently polled pretty poorly as a general election candidate relative to Biden. However, Bernie can can say credibly that he's not doing really any worse than anyone else. And in some cases, he's doing better than some of these other Democrats against Trump. But then the question is, is would he hold up over the course of a general election campaign? And also, if we get to April, May and June and Sanders numbers start to look weaker, is there then some sort of effort to try to stop him at the convention? But I got to tell you, if we go to the convention and Sanders is leading in delegates and he doesn't get the nomination, his people are going to be just absolutely furious about that. And then it's a question of whether you can bring the party back together. And whether they'll go out and vote. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, I think we already saw that, you know, the lion's share of Bernie Sanders voters voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But there was a percentage point worth of voters who are voting for Jill Stein as a Green Party candidate in 2016. I'd say one positive thing Sanders would bring to the table for Democrats is my guess is there wouldn't be much at all third party left wing voting because Sanders is as left wing of a Democrat, I think, as left wing voters could could want. I would not predict a contested convention just because we haven't had one since 1952. It's the last time a convention went to a second ballot. And I think even if you're a Democrat who doesn't like Sanders, you may not want to risk a contested convention to get rid of him. That's a decision that various party actors will have to make, although that also suggests that there are these kind of mysterious players in the party who control what happens. And that's really not how it works anymore. I mean, that's how it used to work. I think for as much as some of the Sanders folks were complaining about certain aspects of the process, I mean, Hillary Clinton did win the nomination fair and square. And also, uh, if Republican power brokers could have stopped Donald Trump from being the nominee, they would have stopped him. And they didn't have, they didn't have the power to do so. Cal, I want to ask you about the primary system. I mean, I think listeners may not really realize that primaries weren't that important until what, in the 70s? That's right. In reality, primaries are driving both parties to the extreme. I think that's a fair point. So how do we fix it? There are some folks who believe that the formal party actors should have more power in terms of determining who the nominees are, um, because you could argue in 2016 that, that Donald Trump was not really a Republican in good standing. Now, I think he sort of evolved to become that way for a lot of for a lot of Republicans, not every Republican. And uh, Bernie Sanders has, has quite pointedly not gotten elected as a Democrat to the, to the Senate and prior to that to the House from Vermont. Granted, he caucuses with the Democrats and he's he's plenty, plenty liberal for, for the Democratic Party, but he's really not formally a Democrat. The primaries really started to matter in the 70s after um, the 1968 Democratic Convention when Hubert Humphrey won the nomination without really contesting the primaries. Um, that led the Democrats to think, boy, we, we maybe need to introduce a little bit more kind of small D democracy into this process. The Republicans followed suit. Over time, we sort of eliminated almost the party leaders from this process. Now, one reform that the Democrats made 
after the uh, uh, George McGovern and Jimmy Carter nominations, those were both kind of outsider candidates. Carter, of course, won in 76, but lost badly in 80, is that they created these so-called superdelegates, which were elected Democrats from the House and the Senate, members of the DNC, other stakeholders in the party that would have a formal vote at the convention. Now, we haven't heard much about the superdelegates this time because after 2016, in an agreement between the Sanders forces and the Clinton forces in the party, the superdelegates were put, sort of put on the sidelines in that they still exist, but they effectively have no power in the first ballot. Um, but if there is a second ballot at the DNC, the superdelegates would activate, and then the actual threshold for winning the nomination would go from just slightly under 2,000 delegates to more like 2,350, so that the total number of delegates would increase because the superdelegates are participating. Imagine a world in which Sanders comes in with a pledged delegate lead, he doesn't get the nomination, the superdelegates activate, and they help get someone else the nomination. You could really imagine just a lot of a lot of bitter feelings, although the Sanders people might be embittered if they don't win. If Sanders does win, there may be other people who are upset. Let's say Sanders wins. He's got all the delegates he needs. What do you think will go into his thinking about the vice president candidate? Well, this is this is where I just don't know in that what does he want to do? Does he want to sort of emphasize his his message, which is kind of outside of the Democratic Party power structure, running as kind of a liberal revolutionary candidate? You know, does he select someone like Tulsi Gabbard or uh, former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who's been a very active supporter of his campaign? Or does he use that VP slot as a way to both help himself in the general election and also to build a bridge back to power centers of the Democratic Party? A selection that might do that would be someone like Kamala Harris from California, Cory Booker, you know, former presidential candidates. I also think that given the importance of non-white voters to the Democratic Party, the days of all white Democratic tickets may very well be over. And so I think he, he would strongly consider a person of color to, to run with him if he, in fact, is nominated. Again, it's not a done deal. He's in better position than anybody else. But if, in fact, he is nominated, there are going to be several signs about how he intends to run. The VP choice is, is a big one. we got about 15 seconds left. You write the crystal ball. Who's going to win November 3rd? Uh, I mean, I think I'd just slightly rather be Trump than the Democratic nominee, but I do think it's a very close and competitive race. I also think that, you know, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, he'll have to prove the doubters wrong, but Trump did a great job of that in 2016. So I can take that to the bank? Well, I mean, I didn't really say all that much, so hey. Thanks so much for being with us, Kyle. No problem. Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'd like to thank my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith, for editing and promoting the podcast. We've been talking with Kyle Kondik. He's with the Center for Politics, and you can follow him by going to centerforpolitics.org. I'd also like to encourage you, our listeners, to review the program, as that will help us broaden our reach, and you can do this on your favorite platform. And with that, I ask, what's your Global IQ?